Okay, our intent was originally, when I thought about what to do these next coming weeks, four or five more weeks, was a great idea. It was really going to be a wonderful idea. However, I was sidetracked by Eli Bennon because Eli Bennon said he liked to analyze the biblical commentary of Rabbi Tassun, which is a very significant commentary, reflections on the weekly Torah readings, the Sneshen Torah, just recently came out, of Yitzchak Haki Sassun. And I decided that, of course, Eli was right and that we should, in fact, engage in this study. We left, so, a, lot, we left a lot of open doors that aren't closed. Life is sometimes that way. <laughs> I hope you're aware of that. <laughs> it is always that way. Could you do me a favor and undo this and undo yeah. this so we could engage in this wonderful repast? <clears throat> so, I think Eli's point is well taken. However, I, I, as usual, will not only adopt Eli's point, but I'll adapt it to my greater end, my greater goals over here, which is to put this in the appropriate, proper framework of what we call Pachuntamikra, biblical exegesis. And of course, everybody here, of course, everybody over here, don't be that concerned about the food. Don't be that concerned about it. Just, you know, just put it over here. Don't need it anyway. I just put it here just for show. It's been here for three years. So don't worry. It's a plastic. It's a plastic. <laughs> so, of course, we want to see this. And what you're going to learn this evening and the next evening is, and this is why Eli's point was a stroke of genius, you're going to see this as a manifestation of a modern Bible commentary's view of the Bible. And you're going to see this in the broader framework of what Pashanut is really all about. And that's significant. I dare say that at the end of this series of two or three classes, you won't be the same people in terms of how you approach a Tanakh. Or essentially, <coughs> what Eli has forced me to do <coughs> excuse me, is to really conceptualize and put together all that we've done for the past two years into a certain kind of a framework. And this will be our touchstone. It'll be not only the text that we're going to use, but also the touchstone upon, about how one should approach Biblical commentary in general. So let's begin with the very essential beginnings, which is when you approach an essentially new biblical commentary. This is fresh off the press. This is two months old. Nobody over here has seen this before. So now you have a great opportunity of undoing all that you've done for 40 years of learning. What do I mean by that? Remember that is that essentially we undermine, we undercut what Torah learning is all about. In that, we take a third grader and we tell the third grader, you see a pasuk, what should you do right away? Tell to me, it's going to cause me pain, but tell to me anyway. Exactly. That scares me. That causes me pain. Tremendous pain. What does that she say about this? So why is that undermining really all of Torah study? We don't have the... It was lost, so we try to be creative. Okay, fine. Is that more creative? Okay, so the question over here is, we train, or in effect, close off the wellsprings of Jewish knowledge by training our children, how in first, second, and third grade, to study a pasuk, and what we would call, you and I would call, really the wrong way. Because as you will see as we go along with what we're going to do over here, and I only have till about 10, 15, because i got to get home other stuff but um, <coughs> we'll see how far we get you will see as we go along over here that we train somebody to not be creative not be really engaged the greatest of the time of the Achamim will of course rise way above that level of looking at Ashi first 
and approach the Pasuk independently. The greatest example of that, as I mentioned on previous occasions, is Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach to Bereshit, Aleph, and Bet. You could argue that there's no more important text in Torah than Bereshit, Aleph, and Bet. And that's been commented on the last two and a half thousand years. And yet he comes along and brings it to life with an incredible vitality with what, he, with what he's done. And we have not studied that. And again, we should study that. See how he approaches these two chapters of Bereshit. And you have to walk away saying, wow, thank you. Saying, wow. Today I had a, a very nice class with Albert Maimon where we read Yoshua, if you want to look it up, Pasuk Yud, I think it was Pasuk Yud, which was an incredible wow. Which he said, wow, spontaneous, because he had read it for homework and he didn't see the wow. And I will, it was Pedagimel, so I Pedagimel Pasuk Yud. I don't want you to do that, because I will go on a tangent. But at home, for homework, look at chapter 3, verse... 10, and if you don't say wow, you ain't there. Right? That's just a side note, parenthetically. It's 310. And he did a homework. <laughs> no, but I'm just taking home my tissues. <laughs> I want my tissues. Are you remembering? You know tissues now. <clears throat> okay, good enough. You can you take that home. You take that home and do homework with that too. So write it on there. And, and why is it important? <clears throat> why is it important to say wow when you're reading? It's important to say well because it means you understand the import and impact of that particular verse. If you don't say well, you missed it. So you look it up, you say, you say now, chances are that 9 out of 10 of people here are not going to say well. But then, if you choose to revisit it next week, we could, I tell you why you should say well to this pastor, which opens up a theological treasure chest of what Judaism is all about. You should be able, after looking at this book, to say, now I know what Judaism is all about by saying wow to this. Similarly, this is not, we didn't do this today, but similarly, look at Yoshua Perek Kavdalet, which people read a thousand times, and yet nobody says wow to it. They don't get it, which means they don't get what Judaism is all about. And I'm choosing my words very carefully. The latter point was brought home to me by Dr. Agus, who was a professor at Uchi University of Jewish History. He says, he just said the same thing I'm saying to you now. Read Yeshua 24, which of course I've read, and, and, I didn't say wow to it. Until I said wow, I didn't really get what Judaism is all about. So it's very significant <coughs> to read texts and be open to the wow factor. I, by the way, created the wow factor. You know, so it's not, you're not going to find any books. It's, you should say wow. Wow means I get it. It means you're stricken deeply, spiritually, by what a particular verse has said to you. Okay? Not every person is going to do that. If you read carefully, see, doors are opened, not closed, but doors are opened. I, my job is to open doors, not close them. So doors are opened when you read a pasuk and say, wow, to it. Right? When you read Rabbi Soloveitchik's commentary, you say, wow. This is striking, this is extraordinary. This now is a spiritual trip for me by reading Rabbi Soloveitchik's article, interpretation commentary on Bereshit, Aleph, and Bet. But okay, back to over here. When we finish our sessions on this book, two or three or four, we'll see how it goes, at the end of the day, hopefully, you will now approach every pasuk with a wow, seeing it more clearly. You will undo all the learning. Those of us who have gone to yeshiva for 10 or 12 or 14 or 15 years will see that the system really undermines the system. What's the goal of Torah study? After that question. Okay, on one hand, Eli will tell me, the goal is to learn, to simply have information. That's true. Halakhically, you have to know, do A, B, C, D, E, F, G on a daily basis. That's important. However, one might raise the question, there's another goal to our study. 
and that is to creatively be able to open up spiritual dimensions, spiritual doors, for yourself individually, for your family collectively, to share a vision of what Judaism is really all about. Jewish education is not only about what you are supposed to do on a daily basis, but if it doesn't incorporate a vision of where it takes you, where it's supposed to take you historically, past tense, future tense, then you're never really a part of the program. Do all the mitzvot that you, that you want, but you won't get to what I'm saying is what Torah wants you to get to, which is a vision of what a Jew should be and how he fits in the overall destiny. On the holiday of Pesach, we had about four or five classes which touched upon this particular issue about what Judaism wants of the individual, the collapse of history. Torah wants you to collapse past into present and future into present so that what is that telling you? See yourselves as if you were in Egypt, right? To see yourself as if you were in Egypt. That's collapse of history. History didn't happen 3,300 years ago. History happened today. And Mashiach should happen when? When's Mashiach going to come? What's your answer to that question? What did a good Jew say to that? Today. In He's coming today. A Jew should believe that. If you're able to believe that, then you have encompassed the beginning, historically, and the end of Jewish history into the present. That's what Torah wants. So we did a philosophy of Jewish time, essentially. It was called philosophy of Jewish time, based on the Haggadah, and based on what Torah wants of us. So there are certain issues that <coughs> present us with the goal of Torah learning. That Shurei Pesach was one of them. Here's another. What the Torah wants of you to see when you study text. Do you think that the goal of Torah was that you open up a Pasuk, and you read Rashi. Let me think that. That should not be the beginning. That's your end. To the contrary, that's your end. That's the end. It inhibits you. It inhibits you. It constrains you. You are then focused. That's my problem. You shouldn't be doing that. You should not be reading one, two, three, four, or five interpretations. What you should be doing is what we're going to talk about in the next... We'll talk, what we'll talk about... Yeah, could be. They're, they're doing a good job. It's how to approach a text in front of you. Let's ask the right questions. It's very important that one learns when one learns what the right questions are all about. Now, we've been studying for two years, or, or at least two, three, four years maybe, and we're raising the question, what are the important questions to raise of any parashan that we study? We're now about to study a parashan. Somebody who interprets our biblical text. So now you have to raise certain questions before you begin to study that Pashan. Whether you're reading Rashi or Ramban or Rashbam or somebody in the Renaissance period of time, that that's medieval, or in the Renaissance period of time, or let's say you want to write some, read somebody in the post-enlightenment period of time, let's say like Hirsch, or you want to read somebody modern, Rabbi Salavechik, Rav Kook, or Rabbi Sassoon, you, there are certain basic essential questions that you want to raise. What's the first question you want to raise? simple. Is he a Pashtan or a Darshan? What is he doing to my holy text? For example, you could raise the question, what do you think this person is going to do to my holy text? What's the book? I saw this in Israel about um, February 98, when I was visiting my daughter Sarah, right? This is amazing. What does he do? Hatanach Kipshutor what is he doing over here? He's reading Tanakh without any preconceived notions whatsoever, period. 
Maybe, Bashan. I don't know. We have to think about that first. Exactly. So Yaakov Wolf is very upset about how, what people have done to Tanakh. He, yeah, exactly. He's saying, he is saying over here, one second, everybody can touch this book. Very serious over here. He is saying over here that people that have perverted this text, they read it with preconceived notions. Let's start all over again. Now, you may not want to do that, but certainly it's an interesting perspective to approach a text with nobody there pre-Ashi, pre-Sa'aja Ga'on, pre-Chazal, text. It's the equivalent, that you could be a student, let's say, of Shakespeare, who was a brilliant writer. To an English major person in college, Shakespeare is the man of the hour. Everything revolves around Shakespeare. A certain glow follows him. See, somebody major has a PhD in English, and they major in English, or Chaucer, who preceded it, but Shakespeare culminates okay. everything. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but who understood it to begin with? I mean, but so, even worse, even worse. I don't want to read it again. So all that. Now you, so, now you might say that you read about Shakespearean theories of this, of this, of this, of this, of this, of this. At the end, you may do say what? You know something? I want to know what did Shakespeare really say. Forget about all that 500 years of literary criticism. What did he say about it? I'm arguing, inspired by Joseph Bennett over here. Welcome. That, and this is what he taught me, right? When you hear a piece of music, what do you do first? Listen to the music with no preconceived notions. He knows nothing about academic music. Is that right? Theory. No, no, I don't mean works. I mean. No, structure. Did you take a course you know in college on musical theory? No. I took five. <laughs> I guarantee you know, Joe. I bet you if I question you, you know. He doesn't know. You know the, the different movements, the different... Uh, Not to, no, no, no. He has to be able to... An- you know what you do in music in, in, in college? Yeah, yeah, I took a lesson. Okay, so you have to analyze this. It destroys the piece of music. I mean, but you have to be able to identify the instruments. You understand point. You, you understand it. Because point, counterpoint, yeah. when the oboes yeah, came yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, the whole story. It's a story being told, a musical story being told. Now, it's sort of I like... That reading this when he does it. Okay, correct, good. Now, however, you could be constrained by what the teacher says is a story being told, as opposed to the Joey Bennett method of listening to music, which is what? Listen, impact, get involved in the music, let the music carry you to another dimension. Because that essentially what the author of that piece wanted to do. I would appreciate the music more if he knows what the author's trying to More or differently? I think more. Or differently. We could ask him about it at one point or other. Because he's the... Right. Agreed. I agree. And how to break the rules, you have to know the rules. Well, we shouldn't say it's either or. In the same way that Eli's pointing out over here that if you go to a museum, this happened to me. It happened to me in that I went to a museum, I was taking art with Sammy Sutton, Sammy Nancy, and... It was, it was almost hilarious because this became a big issue between us. We saw a painting. I happened to have taken the final in music and I knew all about this. So I said, well, Gombrich, which is the article that we read, says this, 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 this. He was so angry at me. Because for reading, it says, you're such an academician, you're such a theoretician. You walked in, you, didn't, you missed the whole point of the picture. He said, stand in front of the picture, absorb the picture, appreciate the picture, and then tell me what the, what the author says. You've ruined the picture. He said to me. So, what is it? Is a text 
is meant to impact. The text is meant to create a question, a dialogue, not a monologue, of you saying it or it's saying it. The text is meant to create a dialogue with you, to transcend you, use that in a transitive sense, to send you from reading this text into another dimension, to be absorbed by the text. Now, if your first opening move is to look at the Rashi, you missed it. Because then you are, then what you're doing is mediated through the heaven and the It's mediated through another medium. It's reading Gombrich before seeing the painting. And only being able to see what Gombrich told you to see. That's the frightening part about that. If Joey, who appreciates music to an extraordinary degree that more than any of us I know, knew all the forms, he might become so academically inclined, he would be able to tell you the form, the counterpoint, the music, blah, 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 and miss the point of the piece. So the, the one you're making is that you, you first read the, read the sentence. Exactly. You first read the sentence and, you, and then try to understand what it means. Then you go to that. But you read the sentence first and then you try to... Exactly. Right. Okay, but much so, more than that. We'll, we'll see in a minute. You're right. You're on the right yeah, track. Read the first. But yeah. much more than that. You'll see it's much more than reading the sentence first. So now the first question we want to ask is the Pshat and Darash. Now, Joey may come along and say to me that you have analyzed this piece with all of the points involved, but you're madrashicizing that piece of music. You are madrashicizing it. That's not what the music is really saying. He may have the Pshat or, or original intent of the author if you want to define Pshat that way, he may have it much more clearly expressed and explained than I have with all my understanding of it. Perhaps. Now, of course, David is right also in that the understanding and knowledge of a 500 years since a piece of music was written does add to the joy, does add to the understanding, but it also may lose something because it's mediated through all of those formal statements. So there's two dimensions that one wants to experience when one hears music, sees art, or sees a text. So your first question is, is this author, Rabbi Sassoon, is he a Parshan or Pashtan? He's a Parshan for sure, but is he a Pashtan or is he a Darshan? Is he reading into the text or is he reading out of the text? Is he an exegete, which means he comes out of the text? Or is he an eisegete, which means he's reading into the text? Number one. Number two. Does he carefully read the text? What does that mean? Does he see nuances? Does he see textual ambiguities? What's an example of a textual ambiguity? <clears throat> Abraham in Parashat Lechicha travels to Canaan and he pitches Sarah's tent. Vayet aho lo. Now what bothers you about that word? You should be aware of this. What do you mean by Hakadosh Baruch Hu? It says his turn. Exactly. It says Ahola. It says Ahola with a hair. It says Ahola with a vav. So now, does he see that? Yes. That she pointed it out to you. You're so happy. I got the point. Okay. What does it really mean? A nice Musar point that over here you learn. What do you learn over here? That when a woman needs seniut, needs dignity. So therefore, of course, Abraham pitched her tent first question. Is that the intent of the Pasuk? Is that a shot point or a darash point? Is that she trying to teach his people of his community of his shul how to be dignified and modest? Or is that really the intent of the author? Meaning, it's a great speech for Shabbat morning that a rabbi to give on Sinayut of how women should dress at weddings. If I were at Lecha next coming year, it's a very good idea. I want to talk about how women dress at weddings and I will begin with that Pasuk. And obviously, 
Now, it's good. I'm either... Problem? What? No, no. not falling out. So the issue... The question over here is Peshat or Darash, reading into or reading out of. You want to see whether or not I am reading into or reading out of that text. It says Aholah. It says it, says it with a hair, but it's read Aholah. So now, my main point is to be able to jump, as every good rabbi does, from a biblical verse, it, seamlessly, nobody realizing it, into a discussion about dignity and modesty at weddings. Now you could come back and say, did that rabbi read into the text? Well, that's really what it is. In this case, it's a good point. Is a pshat or dinash? Now I will, I will make my distinctions very clear. And I may argue that this is pshat as opposed to dinash. And I may convince you, I may not convince you. Sometimes it's ambiguous. Another example. Textual ambiguity. Woman gives birth. What does she do immediately? She gives a korban hatat. Why did she give a korban hatat? Nobody here knows. Does the text tell us? Answer, No. So now we have an interesting question. We have a text with a question. And there are many comments on this particular pasuk because the text is ambiguous. So is my author a careful reader of texts? Is a very important question. Does he see these nuances and subtleties that are really obvious and evident to everybody? Does he take note of philology, of context, lexicography, History, ancient Near Eastern context of a particular verb, uh, a verse, trans-biblical analysis. That's what determines whether he's a Pashtan or a Darshan. We will compare Rabbi Sassoon's modern commentary written two months ago to another one that I had gotten last time I was sick called Biblical Illuminations, which is by a rabbi from Lakewood, which is far to the right. And we will compare down the road in two or three sessions from now how they approach Pesukim. How Rabbi Sassoon does and how our biblical illumination does. Who's the Pashtan, who's the Darshan, and perhaps both are neither. Or both may be both. Comparatively, it'll be interesting to see how they approach the same textual matter. Right? So we want to find out that question. And we want to know, is he concerned about context? For example, if you're doing Pashtan Mishpatim and you're going to read the Pasuk, you're going to read the Pasuk. What Pasuk am I talking about? Right? Here's a context. It's a very striking context. On your Hajj or Hag, I want you to bring this sacrifice, Korban Olat right? On your Hajj or Hag. And I'm telling you, God says, not to see the goat in its mother's milk. Now, of course, Rashi has his issue with it. He says, oh, it means don't cook, get benefit from, or, yes, three times, or cook, get benefit from, or eat, basabe halav. Is that the pshat or darash? Halachic darash, which has become the pshat, is the way we might best characterize that. Rashi is not concerned at all about the ancient Near Eastern context about that pasuk, which Harambam is. The mind says, one second. Why is that food issue right by a holiday issue? So he says, obviously, Moreno Vuchim, part 3, obviously, 
the pagans used to see the goat and its mother's milk on their hajj or hag. Same word. Hajj and hag is the same word, Arabic to, to Hebrew. So for the Rambam, a whole dimension of parashayinut is opened up because of his sensitivity to the ancient Near Eastern context, which is an extraordinarily great mind-bending, mind-boggling, mind-expanding notion that Rambam was the first to think about. The first to think about. Now, it's obvious. We look into the ancient Near about anything that we study about over here. Oh, not we. We, not the broader we. The limited we. We do it. We want to know. What is the ancient Near Eastern context about? The Tehidu Pasuk. And an Assyriologist will do that, and a uh, Biblical historian will do that all the time. Rambam did it. Lord did Goethe do? Why not? In which you just read in the book of Aikra. Because the pagans did it. Shabnez don't wear. Why not? Because the pagans did it. Correct. So that's what I was telling us. Exactly. That's the point. Exactly the point. Right? That's in Amor. It's in Naharemot. Right. So exactly. That's the point. So the Rambam took ancient Near Eastern context in mind. Does our author? That will tell something about it. Furthermore, it's a question. You have to go and say why is it said three times? Why is it have all these things that we get out of the Gemara? Correct. Yeah. That's exactly correct. Right. I agree. Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not judging him at all. His intent, our author, whoever it may be, his intent is not to necessarily do all that work. He may be simply interested in illuminating you with Musar. He wants to make you a better ethical person. The Lakewood Commentary, I don't know the author because I never read the book, but when I bring it in, I might glance to it so I know what's in it. You'll see he's not interested in Peshat. He's only interested, and that's his goal, in making you a better human being. If that's the case, I buy that. Did he? I may judge him, did he reach his goal? His goal was to make you a better human being. It may be really crummy Musad, so therefore, you don't feel good about it. He didn't change me. It was so far-fetched. Today, Rabbi Kandiyoti showed me a commentary that evoked an emotional rage in me, to put it mildly. Is there any other kind of rage? <laughs> There's a cold rage. I mean, it's only I'm coldly raging. Sure, are you kidding? I'm, I'm often coldly raged because I don't want people to know that I'm enraged at them. Those who sign my checks, I don't get emotionally raged. I get coldly raged. They don't know that I'm enraged. It's two different issues. You've got to watch out who you get enraged with. Very important to be aware of that. So, it's... Um, I read it and it was so absurd and so... Uh, the worst stuff I've read. I told him that. I said, this is the worst thing I've read in 10 years. He says, well, maybe you should read three other articles and then choose which one you want. I said, no. The goal over here is not for me to read three because I don't have time to read three or four or five or six or even one. You read and choose and figure out what is right for the shul. That's what his job should be, to figure out what is a sh- what's right for the shul. Not me. He, he's, uh, he's down in the shul in six months. Let's figure out what's right for the shul. I'll guide you, but bottom line is I want you to do this. So... This enraged me. And again, I could show you, and I wrote sarcastic, cynical comments, which is what happens when I get emotionally enraged. I write, you know, because it's foolish what he wrote. I mean, just, it's off, it's wrong, it's poor grammar, it's everything wrong in this particular thing. So we're not putting it out so you'll never see it. Amazing. But okay. So we want to know what was the goal of the author, and does he succeed at that? I'm not going to judge my Lakewood commentary as to whether he did ancient Near That wasn't his goal. His goal was to make to write Musad. And you may like me like that. You should tell me his goal. He should not pass off as Peshat if he's really doing Dinash. He should be sensitive to that. He's not sensitive to that. Okay, because to him, Peshat, Dinash, mystical, sword, Kabbalah, it's all in one mixture. 
He doesn't care one way or the other. So I'm not happy with his commentary. But okay, legitimate point. I still want to see what is he doing in his commentary. So good. Next, how does my author, this is what you should be asking. The first question was, is he a Pashtan or a Darshan? How does he read the text? Good. Second question you want to ask, how does he relate to others who have explained the text? Is he a comparativist? Is he concerned about Rashi, Ramban, Ibn Ezra, or moderns? Let's say, for example, Rabbi Sassoon quotes only Gemarot. That's interesting. Why does he only quote Gemarot? Why do you stop your learning at the 3rd century or 4th century after the Common Era? Because I am a rabbinic scholar, and I only rabbinic in the academic sense. Okay, good. So he's bringing us, his commentary says, I am going to bring you, my reader, to the basic issues, and I'm going to be able to do something with it. I don't know. I may only want to bring you to the base and just tell you about it. That, is that a valuable service? You may say yes. Torah Tamimah does that. We often use Torah Tamimah. He gives me my Gemarot, my whole Saturday speech, which Eli wasn't here because he wasn't here. Eli wasn't here. He wasn't here. He wasn't here. He wasn't here. He wasn't here. Okay. Now, what do I speak? What do I speak? Nobody comes. No, they're here. They don't come. Usually, that, that is probably the best comment I've heard in 20 years of the, of the rabbinate. That should go down in the annals of the shul. That rabbi, did you speak about religion or something? You're brilliant. That was a great, very sharp point. 100%. Yes, I usually try to speak about religion. That's correct. I spoke about... I'm sorry? It was good. It was really good. Right. No, it was putting that in the context of Kiddushim to you. Call Adap in Israel. Gufet Torah. Yes, Judaism. More or less. More or less. Not everybody would agree. Gufet Torah to Limbo. Why is Kiddushim so important? And it has, it has, Hatarach HaKamoch HaZeklad Gadol Torah, which is a very important principle. And it has also the mitzvah that is the most expansive and Torah. So which one is that? One that begins when you're born and never ends. This mitzvah never ends. Which is Kibbutz Avayim? Nobody really answered this question. So which one is it? Because even after God, after 120 years, what happens? You're obligated Kibbutz Avayim, and what about after your 120 years? Are you still? Could you do something that will damage the name of your parents even after you pass away? Of course. If you leave, if you left the literary work which says my parents stunk, and you and you release it only after you pass away, and you embarrass them, they're not even here. But you, that's a problem. So this is a extraordinarily expansive mitzvah. Right? Right, correct. And I went into raising questions. When do you obey your parents? When don't you obey your parents? And I then analogize the Gemara, the Bavli says, this is so important that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and it's relevant in this context to to revisit this, that the Bavli says, in Gran Kiddushin, that God himself says that respect to your parents is equal to respect for me. How does the Gemara learn that? It is Invite Hanan. No, no, no. And over here, same word, equal. People said, wow. That's amazing. Respect for God is the same respect for your parents. That's what you do with your parents. They, they said, wow. That's not a wow. That's Pashut. Yerushalmi says, which Tunatimah quoted as well, no, God says, respect your parents more than you respect me. I gotta prove that. I challenge anybody to know how could you prove that. You missed a very good speech, I'm sorry to say. Very contemplating. You're getting it now. You're getting it now. That's correct. Right. How could you prove? I challenge you. I challenge them. Prove to me respect for God is more, is less than respect for your parents. The parent does it. How does it do it? Look it up. What is it saying? 
Hashem says, do lulav, sukkah, etc. Okay. If you could afford it, you buy lulav, you buy sukkah, and you have the mitzvah. What if I can't afford it? Am I obligated to go begging for the money to buy lulav? Answer? No, of course not. However, I'm obligated to support parents in their old age if they need to. They need me. Correct? Am I obligated in their old age? Am I obligated to go out begging for money to support my parents? Answer? Yes. Hashem says, take care of them. Me, you don't do a lot, you can't afford it? Fine. Them, you must respect more than you respect me. That's a wow statement. Right? God says, I want you to respect them more than you respect me. What? Sorry? Because a mitzvah like lulav, I'm not obligated to beg for. This is a physical thing, not now. Physical, yeah. The Gemara says that. Oh, the Gemara says that. It's pashur the halacha. More than that, go out and beg for them. If you need to, you have to go out and beg for money. To the point of begging, exactly. The point of begging if they need to. If they need you, you need to support them. Good. So we raise it. Now we have that, that parameters. What if they tell you to be Mahalo Shabbat? We know that famous Rashi and Gemara about that. They tell you Mahal Shabbat and your parents and they tell them no, etc. There's all kinds of other interesting cases that I brought up. What about if they misquote a halacha? Right? So you look at Shuhan Aruch, Reshmem, Yuredi'ah. It says, what do you do? You don't, you, you, don't comment. Tur, Shuhan Aruch will say, don't comment on that issue. Don't, their dignity is more important than the, halach, the truth of the halacha. Harambam, however, says no. Harambam, in his Chot Shechita, tells you over here that my father said it's Asur, but I'm saying it's Mutar. So he publicly, in his whole book, says my father was wrong. But you, you can't embarrass somebody even if they pass on. In the eyes of the Kaham. In the eyes of the readers. So that's interesting. How the Rambam holds and how Rashi and, and the Tura and all held. Rambam was rejected at the end. And yet the Torah comments over here and says, I'm shocked at this Machloket. Because Torah is emet and you have to follow truth. And look, the Rambam himself says, tell the truth the way it is. And we don't care about your dignity of parents. The other said, two Shadu said, don't embarrass your parents, don't say they're wrong. So these are interesting issues about Kibbut Abayim. And of course, I want the next point about how I want you to respect the parents of Seth. Okay, good. So, you want to know over here, is he only quoting rabbinic sources? That was all rabbinic sources. And that's Torah Tamima. It's a nice book, if it only does that. Will he insightfully now explain these sources differently than I knew or understood? We want to figure out. what. Who does he quote? Has he relate to others who explain this text, both ancient and moderns? Does he quote anybody modern? Is concerned about a modern issue or not? What are his concerns? Further, is there a polemical streak in his commentary? Now, ordinarily, you may not be concerned about that. Why am I concerned about that? Because often people use biblical commentaries to do what? To attack another group. Whether you're an anti-Karaitic and your name is Sa'ajigaon, or you're Rashbam and you're against Christians. Or you are Ibn Ezra, who quotes Karaites, does not attack him, but quotes Karaites, but he does quote certain Rabbeinu Yitzhaki, and what should we do with Rabbeinu Yitzhaki? We had seen this. Right. Laugh at him for his dumb comment. Which Rabbeinu Ezra says in his comment about, uh, in Bereshit, about, uh, at the end of Pashat Bishalach or something. Okay, good. So, our biblical commentaries 
often have polemical streaks in them. So when we want to know, does Rabbi Sassoon have any polemical issues over here? Do you think he does or not? Do you think he does? Everybody does? Very hard. I have no polemical streaks. You think I have polemical streaks? Can I polemicize? Who polemicized? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm just saying that. What shul do you go to? One second. What shul do you go to? What's your band? Okay, I know where you're coming from. <laughs> you just revealed your colors. Okay. You just polemics. Okay. It's a little polemical over there. Maybe he's right. Everybody's a polemicist here or there. Very good point. Okay. Now, I, would, I, was, supposed to, I was prepared to defend the statement because you're supposed to say to me, what polemics? Who cares? Who's polemicizing? The end? I mean, it's, it's an amazing comment that he perceives... Sorry? Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry? Yeah, he did. Because that's an interesting question. I'm coming to this from an academic study of Parchanut, where we often find polemicists, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle. Sometimes it's open and clear, sometimes it's not. But one should be reading Parshanut with an eye towards polemics. Is somebody ranting and raving against someone else? Important question. Good. Or subtle. It could be subtle. What's amazing is that sometimes making the point, Rabbeinu Avraham's commentary, which of course is studied very closely, we see no polemics against any outcomes against anybody actually. And he's such a great commentary that he has pietized what does that mean? I just made it up. He's made he's taken the philosophy of pietism and he's such a great commentary that he made you think that piety is the shot of the text. Now those people will say, Oh, he's a Pashtan. One second. This point that he makes over here is not in the text at all. It can't be shot of the text. It's all Musad. But no, no, no. He said it, and it's so clearly associated to the text. He's able to walk with the text, and you'll say at the end, maybe it is a shot of the text, and we can have examples of that. But he's such a good. So he doesn't polemicize, and maybe that's why he doesn't. He doesn't want to tip his hand, because once you read a polemic polemicist, you're ready for anything. So then you know, maybe he's going to isogize. Remember the word isogize means to read into your text, supposed to exogize. Sorry? Your guard goes up. Your guard goes up. Exactly. Good. So it's nice not to polemicize and make everybody think you're writing shot when really you are isogizing. You really are isogizing into the text your agenda, your hidden agenda. So be very careful about this. Everybody thinks they're reading the words of Torah exegetically and really you are isogizing your agenda, which in his case was mysticism, pietism, Sufism, question mark, because nobody knows if that's really there or not. I do, but nobody else knows if that's really there or not. That's another interesting question. Right? That's chapter 2b from my thesis. Right? If he's really doing Sufis or not. So the question over here would be, is it a polemic? Is there an agenda? Is it clear or not clear? Ibn Abraham, it's certainly not clear. The thin line between Pshat and Dirash is so thin sometimes that you won't know. And again, my best example would be, read Professor Lechuk's commentary on Beresheet Al-Bet. You'll say it's Dirash, I'll say it's Pshat, or we could argue about it. And it's so good that we won't really know. All right, people can study for 35, 40 years and don't have a position. On what? On anything. 
I want to know what you mean. What did Eli say? Eli's polemic. So you're saying the opposite. You're saying that no, you have you polemic. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, the truly great. Only the child in the kindergarten that they're trying to get back to. I say I say the exact opposite. The truly great people are so objective and above it all because they know that doesn't really count. Rabbi Soloveitchik didn't polemicize. I think he wants to make a point, and therefore it's not polemical. Not every point is polemical. He's not attacking anybody. He did not polemicize. Having a position doesn't mean that you're polemicizing. No, it's not. No, it's not. You're stating this is where I stand. If you're not with me, you're against me. No, you can be wherever you want. He said, for example, we were in once an interesting point. We had, um, and this illustrates well the point. Somebody asked Rabbi Soloveitchik in an intimate meeting of eight or ten students in his apartment at night, ten eleven o'clock at night. Rabbi, should I go to college? I don't know if I should go to college. What should I do? College? I'm, I'm upset. I'm crazy. I don't know what to do. What was Rabbi Soloveitchik's answer? What do you think his answer was? To go to college. What do you think his answer was? Don't go to college. Right. Quote. Quote. I don't believe in spiritual slavery. You must decide that on your own. Okay. Spiritual slavery like means. Uh, it's not the opposite of Das Torah. Huh? It's the opposite of Das Torah. Exactly. Correct. Meaning, he doesn't believe in that. Because he's saying over here that every person has to search his own heart and make his own spiritual decisions. I'm not a Rebbe. I'm not a Rebbe. He's saying, I'm not a Rebbe. He's not a Rebbe. over here. He's not asking if kosher or not kosher. This is a question that's given to the individual conscience. And you decide where you should be fit into this whole thing. I can't decide this issue for you. In the student should have re- probably assumed that the rabbi knows enough about him to give him proper advice. That he knew enough about the student who was asking the question. Even if he did, he would not. Okay. Should I, Rabbi, should I get married or not get married? I don't know if it's a responsibility issue as much as it's... As it's no, he's... Co- he wants spiritual growth. Yes. Yes, you must know who you are and when you're going. Don't depend on me, right? Right? That's the famous. Sometimes, sometimes the person wants to discuss. He didn't ask for a discussion. He asked for a psak halacha. Should I go to college or not? I don't believe in spiritual slavery, and that is his position. Now, furthermore, interestingly enough, people often say that Rabbi Soloveitchik contradicts himself. He said this or this shiur, this and this shiur, they're two different things. What are you, two different people? Two different audiences. That's one possible reading of it. But I say something much different than that. I would say that he does, and that I've been trained this way, that when I approach a text, you approach it fresh, with no other preconceived notions. Even his own. Even his own, exactly. Even his own. That's exactly right. No, that's the brilliance and beauty of it. That's not him. Which means what? That he's going to read... It is a beautiful book. He's going to read Bereshit Aleph and Bed and see things coming out of it. And it's going to be coming out of it. And then what's going to happen? Two, three, four, five years, he's going to read that same text again. And what's going to happen again? 
You're another person yeah, five years later. You, might, you, you cannot make, But of you course you can. That's his whole point. You know why that's the point? Because he believes, as Ishalacha tells you, that Limud Torah is really the Hadesh. That's my point. That's the point over here. Limud Torah is not doing Rashi Nambam as a natural learning. Limud Torah is, is Hidush. In part three, I believe, it's Ishalacha, which is a book that people should read. He says the essence of learning is Hidush. It's to say something new. You want to tell what Rashi says? That's learning. That's that's preliminary. That's nice. Fine. It's only repeating. Learning is really lehadesh. So therefore, he reads a text, whether it's Gemara or Halakha or it's Parshanut, reading a biblical text. He will come to that same text anew. He's so far away in your head. You can't ignore it. <coughs> I have a hard time. He's not concerned about contradicting well, himself. Here. He's not concerned. Yeah. Exactly. He's a courageous guy. He doesn't care. And he's also a different person. But and he but, matures. But he can't, he but you can't ignore. You can't, life. Can I ignore your past or what? What, what in your brain? You could. I don't, yeah. think, I don't know if you're ignoring it. You're trained. I think he's right. You approach something afresh. But I do that all the time. And you have different views as you grow older. And yeah. as well as, but I do that all the time. I'm going to. I will tell you. I will tell you that. What I did on Kiddushim four years ago, if I were to approach it again, it would be very different. A, because I've changed. I've learned yeah. much more. But B, because I, I want to approach it differently. I may, at the end of the day, come up with the same thing. But I may not. I don't know. But I, 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 I don't want to do what I did two, three, four, five years ago. I don't want to do it. I don't want to see it again. I want it. No. It's, you know what it's like? This is a uh, rough analogy. But it's sort of like when I prepare a hisped, Right? You'll know mine as well as somebody else's. This is Robert Selvajic as well. You are preparing it based on who that person is. And every time you do a spit, I don't do what I did for somebody else. Right? Some rabbis do. You don't know who's there. No, but it's done. I mean, am I, wait, am I exaggerating that? I mean, is that what happens? Where you don't really know the person. And the devotee whatever could be the same for any person. And a little tidbit, you know, about... The person. I start with the person. Who was this person? And what was he all about? It's fresh, because that's appropriate. And there are times when I will refuse because I don't know the person. The sad point over here is I'll say, okay, well, tell me about the person. Nice guy. No, no, you're his son. Tell me more than that. Tell me something about the man. Good guy. That's it. That thing doesn't Tell me a story. What was his values? What, was his, what did he teach you? blank and I will refuse often not there's no hidush over here it's wrong for me to, to try to make up something about this person as opposed to start with the person and now conceptualize and build and often if not always that will be my approach there are times when you cannot do that it's true you're called upon often to speak about a person that you don't know and they won't tell you anything then you have to be creative in some manner or fashion but proper dignity for that person really is built on who that person was. That's a Selemon Okim, a human being that lived 70, 80, 90 years. What was he all about? Rabbi Soloveitchik was an extraordinary maspid as well. Dr. Fox, Marvin Fox, has a great article, brilliant article on, which nobody ever saw before, nobody ever thought of, such as a maspid. How do you do his fed? What did he do? And Rabbi Soloveitchik would pinpoint that person, and he's done many hispedim, obviously as a rabbi for 50 or 60 years, many hispedim, he would, you would learn, you'd say, wow. You'd walk away saying, wow. Because you felt you knew the person, though you didn't know the person, 
Best of state. Not because he told you where he was born and who he lived in that, but the person's core, his spiritual essence, was crystallized in that his bed. Now that takes amazing powers to be able to do that. And obviously I don't, I don't think I have those powers. But I try to approximate that. It's a, meaning approaching every situation afresh. I don't have my 10 gemarot, you know, and 10 pisukim that apply to 15 different people. Similarly at weddings. You want to look at this, you, know, you can't always do that because you know the people. You're doing weddings and you don't know the people. What are you going to do? It was so nice. I did a wedding three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. I know, I should ask a couple that can't them once. Very nice. We did the whole story. I said, I could speak, but it's canned. Or you could speak. Or your father could speak. Or your mother could speak. Whoever you want to speak. And there'll be something special. They said, the father refused. Okay. Said, your kids, speak. Say something about your kids. Refused. So I said, I'm willing to do this. It's no problem for me. But do you want to say something? The thought is, I said, how about you say something to each other? And they said, I had tears in my eyes throughout the entire... He said to her, and she said to him, such words of, of depth, of power, of spiritual sustenance, that that's going to help bind them together as a couple. Every time they see their wedding video, whatever they're going to see there, it's not Rabbi said, who didn't really know them. It's what, and again, it's what the student commission was, it's what is going to bind them together. What he said to her and she said to him. It was, just, it was beautiful. It was really amazing. Four minutes, two minutes each. Think about what you would want to say, what you should have said to your spouse 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. Imagine if a rabbi... <laughs> I didn't say that, no. And I won't tell you who said that, no. Imagine. Don't imagine. It's a bad word. It's okay. Imagine if the rabbi challenged you. Imagine. You could use this as part of your routine one of these days. The rabbi said, imagine this is like, no. But imagine if the rabbi challenged you. What an exercise it would be in crystallizing your feelings about what's happening right now. You're getting married. You're spending God willing the next 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years with this person. And you love this person. That's why you're getting married. And you're mature enough. Imagine if you had to sit down and really think about these issues. It might be a very important exercise, which I should be doing to you. I should be getting you as a rabbi to think about what these issues are all about. Your core values, her core values. So we should be doing when you're about to get married. Okay, let's back to this. So now, plans we spoke about. Does he have an agenda? We spoke about that as well. But I want to add a word now. Does he have a conscious agenda? What's a conscious agenda? I want to make you think something. But an author may in fact have an agenda without it really being a conscious agenda. You could ask me and challenge me. Did Rabbeinu Abraham really consciously pietize the text? Or was it something that was so infused in his personality that it just came out naturally? I would say that I'm a natural existentialist. Whatever that means. Not to explain right now, but that's what I am. So I read text existentially. It's who I am. Because of my previous experiences and life and whatever else it may be. So you should be aware of that. I read text existentially. Because of Robert Soloveitchik, etc., etc. Right? My philosophical background. So now I'm an existentialist. So now, that's really, when I explain, that's really unconscious. I'm not a natural halachist. I'm not a, legal distinctions bother me. Upset me. It's not who I am as a person. So if I'm going to open up a parasha, I have to prepare a class for the first minyan class, which is our superstar minyan, right? That's the big guys, right? So now I could decide to. Somebody said wow in the class that I was here. 
you commented on it. That's correct. Yeah, I'm a wild bird. I don't know why he said wild bird. <laughs> He's smart. You want to get an extra kid there? <laughs> or 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 some booze? Like what do we have that day? I I get sorry. <laughs> right, right, cheese. Right. So now the point over here would be is that somebody has or doesn't doesn't even know that he has an agenda. You can't separate it because you become you become it. Whatever you whoever you are, you become merged with your text almost. So you may may not be aware of that. I'm not necessarily aware of my agenda. So when I choose a topic. My natural question is to X, and I'll give you a concrete example right now in, in, in about two, two minutes. Oh my goodness. Fast forward, and then we want Okay, right. My conscious example would be is that if I were approaching, I'll ask you this question. If I were approaching this perasha, what would I talk about? Kedushim. It's right in front of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or tell me about more what we talk about. You have to know the parasha, obviously. Your job is to prepare a class for Shabbat, and you want to prepare the class. So now you have to choose. You can't. You have to choose. You, I assume. You, I assume you're not going to. It's true of any parasha. It's a great exercise. I assume that you're not going to simply sit there and read and read and read and read and translate and read just something else that's more than that. So if you're going to do something that's more than that, what are you going to do? That is incredibly revelatory about who you 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 are all who you are. Now, Eli, we know, is going to read Rashi. He told me. He's going to read Rashi and Ramban of Ezra. Right. That's what you're going to do. Sorry? Ramban. Ramban, right. I would do something very different. What am I going to do? What would I do with this Pirashah? If I what? read till the dawn on the end, I look, look for the altar, what does it mean? Okay, good. Fine. Okay. I hear that. That's not inappropriate. It's appropriate. Okay, so I, have, I may have an agenda. May have an agenda. My agenda is not halachic. So I'm not going to necessarily speak about halachic issues. I'm going to speak about philosophical issues. That's me. Which may it's not it's so much part of me that's not really an agenda any longer. It's not a conscious agenda. But you may point out to me that you know Rabbi taught us the last five months or five years, and every class is philosophical. Emily is somebody who um, is very critical of what I do very often, and she has complained for the last I'd say nineteen of twenty years that I've been a rabbi over here that my classes are way too philosophical. She says go back to basics. She wants basics. Do simple stuff. It's not me. It takes a it talent. Out. It won't come out. It won't come out. It takes a talent to be simple. A very great talent to be able to take a Torah and relate it to people simply. I don't know how to do that. It's a flaw. It's a flaw. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But it's... No, not I'm not. Not in this <laughs> class. I'm not. <laughs> Sorry. There goes one balloon. Well, burst. Because... Oh, it on. could be well, a fatal flaw. Right. Of course, it's fatal flaw. Of course, he's right. Sure, because I mean, you're not impacting on ninety percent of the people. With a level of the people that you're with. Right. It's a good point. Although I would say that I've been. But you're successful in the byproduct, let's say, so to Good. Okay. Okay, that could be. I buy that. Although it is true that I pride myself that a couple of years ago, Rabbi Lana had given me what was known. I mentioned this to you once before. The sweat hogs of the school. Sweat hogs, you know, sweat hogs from Welcome Back Carter. Me too. Could you find it for me? I mean, we'll find it. We love it. It's where? What's that? That's a channel? Cable channel that runs. We can hide it. It's called TV Land? Because we don't. So you have that? Oh, okay. Well, anyway, if anybody accepts it, record it. I'll pay you. No problem. So, and and, uh, these kids are notorious and nobody could ever teach them. So this was my great challenge as a pedagogue. A pedagogue who's really a good pedagogue should be able to teach every level. And it's not the same message to everybody. 
And I taught them for two years because I loved it so much because that was really building a person. And it was successful. I think it was successful in that they got my message, my points. So it wasn't as sophisticated as highfalutin, but it was a cut effort. My, I don't naturally do it. I don't naturally do it, but I had to work at it much more with much more difficulty. How to approach this with them, etc. But it could be a federal flow because you're in a synagogue. You have all kinds of. You have to do your job. You're not meeting the needs of everybody. You're meeting the needs of only one select group. So I don't want to do that. The hard part is, if I try, I think I could do it. But the hard part is when everybody comes into one class and you know who's coming, so you're prepared for A and B comes, right? Then I, what do I do then? So that's a very difficult. Then I will often, you may not notice, I will change the class on the spur of the moment if I see who's there. I'll change it. So I know that these people cannot handle what I've prepared and therefore I have to change everything. It'll be a very different class than prepared. That's rabbi teaching. You have to be aware of who you're teaching. A rabbi should be aware. Who's coming? You don't know who's coming. So what do you do? You prepare your shi'ud and then you be smart enough to be able to flexible to adapt. Good. So let's come back to this. Does he have a conscious agenda? Conscious or not conscious agenda? Right? Furthermore, another question. Would this person agree with Harambam's classic five-word statement, four-word statement, Shema Hayamet Mimish Amara, which I said to you before is probably the most powerful phrase in all rabbinic literature. Ramam says, which we've seen before, right? Listen to the truth from whatever source. Shema Hayamet Mimish Amara. Right? It's an obvious, powerful phrase. That's an important point. Try that with David Tao. Try that tomorrow with Rabbi Mocha. The Rambam says that in, in a context. Right. We changed his name though. So you got to change the name of who you, who you quote. If you quote Darwin, change his name. Otherwise you get thrown out of the shul. We understand the implications of that word. Listen to the truth from whichever its source comes. And I want to tell you very clearly, I am going to, in this work, I'm going to quote from a whole range of sources. He doesn't say that. His early and, mid, early and late philosophers, he's talking about Plato, and Aristotle, and Al-Farabi, and Avicenna, and Averroes, perhaps. And, of course, now we have Al-Farabi's work on political philosophy, and we have, which preceded Rama by 200 years, and we have paragraphs lifted out from the Arabic to the Hebrew. I could show you exact whole sentences lifted out. But that's Pashut. We know it. We see it. It's black on white. Similarly, a key element of Shemunah Perakim the Rambam is his notion of Shavil Hazahab, the middle road, in ethics. You're not to be overly, crazily heroic and jump into fires. You're not to be overly cowardly, but you be courageous. Well, that's an example of middle road. Where does the middle road come from? Everybody knows it comes from Aristotle's the anima. Aristotle wrote a, road, wrote a work called the anima, which means the anima on the soul. The soul. The Ram wrote a book, this is about a book about ethics, which I made from the soul, in the Rama's view. And he talks about the middle ground, as Aristotle does. Obvious. Although, it takes a great mind and a great scholar to point out that the Rambam's middle road is not Aristotle's middle road. The Rambam adopted and adapted. He was no slavish follower. He was much too smart for that. And again, if one were to study this, we would point out how the Rambam subtly changed the notion of Aristotle's middle road. Okay, so the Rambam did quote from Plato, from Aristotle, 
from the Arabic philosophers as well to create. And he tells you, I'm not going to tell you who I'm quoting from. But I'm telling you now, I'm not plagiarizing. I'm, saying, I'm quoting from others. What's Ram's hidden agenda over here? He thinks that you are going to, from the word, reject, reject a source if not from the traditional sources. And therefore he says to you, listen, I'm going to tell you I'm quoting from. You are going to work with my work, but you may get other stuff from over here. And you're not going to hold it from And bottom line is, listen to the truth from whichever it's source. If it's true, then it's true. Whoever says it. So, is it again? It's not. Not what said, it's who said it. Well, that's what he's it's not against. what's it? Oh, that's what he's against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. So now, if you have a Hertz Humash that quotes non-Jewish sources, are you going to burn that book, as some people do, or are you going to say, if it's true, I accept it, and if it's not true, I reject it? Again, the Rambam would obviously say, if it's true, you accept it. So no problem quoting non-Jewish sources in Hertz Humash. Most synagogues will not have that humash in their synagogue. Right? <laughs> that is a, I got one from Rabbi Hech. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I did. I read, I read cover to cover. But you will not find it there now. If you bring it in, you could be stoned. Hurts. He's right. We got hurts. I have a bullet here. I still have it. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, there are more than other sources there. Well, it's there. So, the interesting point over here would be, how does the, our author, this has a lot about the author, approach, would he agree with that statement? How does he approach that statement? Shema, emet, listen to the truth from whichever it's source. This tells me an awful lot. Say again? Mimisha Amara, from whomever he says it, right. From me, Mimi, from whoever, whomever. Listen to the truth. From whoever says it. From whoever. Okay? Good. What are his sources? What are my commentary sources? The Ben Abraham's commentary is composed of other commentaries. He never quotes Rashi except once where in this huge commentary we call him Hatsar Fati, the Frenchman. Not very respectful. Rashi's become the commentary par excellence for the right reasons. He's great for most people. He has a great point. Selective point, fantastic. Ibn Abraham says, I don't deal with him. He often quotes Sa'aja, Hofni, and Ibn Ezra, and has great respect for Tukum Ankulus. A lot of who the commentary is, is based on the sources that he quotes, if he quotes sources. So obviously his sources tell me something about who he is and what I could expect. Furthermore, is my commentary aware, of whatever the commentary is, is he aware of issues taking place outside his window? Which also will tell me something about is he an exegete or an eisegete? Meaning, if you read a commentary and you cannot historically locate that commentary, more likely that he is a Pashtan. He doesn't care what's happening outside his window. He's only looking at the text. Correct? Unless, unlike what unless, he has an agenda which is to, let's say, Musarize you. Musar of the last thousand years, if you come over day Yosef speaks, you can't tell me most of the time where what generation he's in, what century he's in. He could as equally be a twelfth century commentary on his Bible as it could be on a twenty first century. He's trans historical. He's not interested in issues that are outside. Yes, of course it's true that sometimes he does comment on political matters, governmental issues. That's true. 
sometimes it's very practical. Well, practical means... Okay, in the, right, correct. But when I've heard him speak, say, three or four or five times, you couldn't necessarily... He wasn't with any issues in the synagogue and outside the world. Discipline with the authority that he had and, and the oh, yeah. voting and all that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, 100%, correct, yeah. It's so, like Felix, uh, absolutely, correct. You want to know his sources? Correct, absolutely. The Rambam's Mishneh Torah could have been written in any century. You wouldn't know about it. He doesn't comment on historical issues and that halakhic work whatsoever. So too, Moreh Nebuchim. Why? Because for the Rambam, truth is absolute and trans-historical. So you don't need, don't locate it in a certain place. Those works are not. The Ben Rambam has four works. Two of his works, three of his works, are trans-historical. And two of them are very much rooted in the 13th century Egyptian Jewish community. Which means I read his works, I know what's going on in the community outside. And other three of his works, you don't know. Well, you sound, to me, it sounds like a contradiction from the first minute of the class. To read the text simply as it is, and not worried about anybody else's interpretation. No, that's... Now they have to root themselves back. Hey, maybe I'm going way out. Let me see if I can find somebody where I can get rooted in. But Again, it's almost that like you have to read it that way that you can't step out. Let me try to understand this. I don't want to confuse you. Of course, one should approach a text fresh. Right. Now, That's fresh, when you're the commentary. Right. Now but I'm now we're analyzing. No, 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 no. Now, anal- what, what followed is not when you're the commentary. That's what we're going to do about your comment. But now I'm asking these questions regarding a commentary that Eli wants to study. Okay, no, no. I read, I, I read the, the text fresh. Yeah, it's all I'm talking about right now. I put my comments on, right? Right. Now we're going to ask all these questions no, about you. Now I'm ready for you guys to ask me questions. Exactly. So I better see who I'm rooted with. Where do I get my... Oh, yeah, okay, correct. From? That's correct. So all, all of a sudden I'm finding myself going back. Hey, maybe I stepped out here. I better go back in line. Or you may... No, no, no. Or you may not have any sources. You may say to us... about everybody that has sources. Yes, so, so we are, yes. No, no, no. Now, correct. I'm not going to be respected. This guy's way out. Except, for example, you read Rabbi Salavajic. No, no, wait, wait. So, like, you read Rabbi Salavajic, his biblical commentary has no sources to it. Correct. Exactly. He's only different approach. Correct. So, we want to figure that out. So, when I read Rabbi Salavajic, I say, the power of his word is what sways me. The insight, the understanding, the brilliance. So, he might be on a level where he's an authority himself. Yeah. Yeah, correct. Him and he's willing to say, I'm going to sink or swim based on my commentary. That's such a great mind, Rob. I find some people like at that level that people, he doesn't need authority to, to Correct. That's correct. That's right. But on, much, on everyone else's level, perhaps they want to quote. So careful about, let me not, let me just leave myself. Yeah. And that's safer. Because I didn't say it, he said it. But it's a different mindset, it's a different approach, it's a different world, really. Rabbi Salavechik, his whole essence is creativity, is hidush. When
Okay. You want to also ask, how does the parshan who we're talking about approach a pasuk? That is, with any preconceived notions. Does he have any? That is, a secular Israeli is going to approach our biblical text very differently than a Haredi with different preconceived notions. Correct. Or different than a modern Orthodox person. Different than an academician. How is Rabbi Sassoon going to approach his text? Is he an academician? Yeah. He's a teacher and he's an academician. He quotes sources. That's okay. Good. But only certain sources. Is he a Heloni? Is he a secular Jew? No. Is he modern Orthodox Jew? Can you figure out from him what he's all about? He's a, he's a, he's a, I, I don't like labels. David says I, I, I don't like labels. Well, the labels all help you. All Orthodox, some more than others. Orthodox is a label. I don't like Orthodox more than others. Orthodox is a label also. Orthodox is what? It's a label. It's what? All Jews. All Jews are Orthodox? The conservative and reform are probably very much against that statement. They probably would agree with that. What do you think, in this interesting work, Lethal Love, Feminist Literary Readings of Biblical Love Stories, what do you think the... Oh, there's a guy who has preconceived notions. When I write the Jewish voice, I wrote the Did you? I didn't see yeah. the, either of them. What, my point over here is that here's a biblical commentary. Now, your question over here should not necessarily be um, be negative to read the book. But the, but the, the, the title already is not combative. Maybe. It is. Maybe. Your quote-unquote narrow-mindedness cannot see beyond a subtitle. So what you should really do as a good academician is read and say maybe this is a good reading of the text. I don't know what you're talking about. It doesn't matter. You want to see over here that she, this person, may have insights. It may be trash. I'm agreeing. It may be trash. But it also may have incredibly insights, shot insights, that nobody else has ever seen that. You know from the title she has an agenda. Okay, but good. The woman's, the woman's cause. Correct, That's correct. But maybe the Bible does that. One second, maybe the Bible does that, and you haven't seen it because you're a male. So you want to be... And all the people and that wrote about it are male. That's correct. Uh, That's correct. That guy's head off the whole well, you're chopping her head off pretty quickly also. <laughs> I don't like the word Very good. The truth is, without my wife here, I don't either. I feel the same way you do. But the academician, I, I do. I hear you. I hear you. I hear. But you need them because it's a symbol. A label, a label is a symbol of who the person is. But it's limiting. So you're both right. But over here, the academician in me, which is why I bought the book, is well, I haven't read it yet. In fact, so I think I think Monique bought this book. As a matter of fact, so you're in trouble. Monique bought this book at one point. Yes, a couple of years ago. <laughs> but what's interesting over here look at, look at her issues on this the emergence of lethal women or the use of hermeneutic models this is an academician writing and she's smart enough and nice enough to tell us her preconceived notions or bias over here so now maybe we could learn something about we care about truth right we care about Shemami Shemara and maybe she will uncover over here Something interesting about the Torah. Now, we'll talk about who's a lethal woman. Give me, give me a lethal woman. <laughs> She's lethal, yes. They're, you're dating yourself. Cause anyway, Eddie brings a lot of new insights to this Yes, he absolutely does. Come again. Meet Salamit. Delilah. Was Delilah a lethal woman? Oh, so now you're part of this book over here. See this man? He says, Samson's... Okay, that's what you're talking about. 
Samson's talking cure and the rhetoric of subjectivity. Okay, Ezebel. Um, I mean, she has a fantastic, interesting stuff over here. Sexuality, sin, and sorrow. The emergence of the female character. And all, I mean, interesting stuff. How weak men are. But how do you know? You didn't read it. Of course. You have issues. I, I, no, big I, time. No. I got big time. Samson gave in to the woman. Delilah, of course, she told him a hundred times, tell me your, your source. He lied to her, lied to her, lied to her. Come on already. He lied to him a hundred times. Right. We know the story. That's a movie. 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 That's but well, this may be something else which might be interesting in terms of reading Pshat. We only care about the Pshat necessarily. It's, it's a whole different perspective, right? So interesting Correct. I don't believe in it. I don't believe it. I agree with you. I agree. Correct. But call her. Call. Would you take the New Testament, analyze it, Never. because it's... See? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. You're right. He quoted it. He didn't say he believed in it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. So, I have other things to do. Okay, so, so do I. So do I. I haven't gotten to everything yet. So the point over here is that, obviously, here we have, in these books, clear preconceived notions. It does not necessarily mean they won't provide truth. We care about truth. And this might give us a perspective on an insight that we may never, ever have about what Torah is all about. So that's what we really want. Find out what Torah is really all about. So, but at least here we do have a clear agenda. Right? And if one were to read this book, I could give Sonia homework. Okay, and you have done, to... I've done homework before. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to lose my hands. You have to do this homework. I don't do that. But you, and you may throw it out. I mean, it may be gone. Absolutely. Correct. Correct. That's exactly my point. But on the other hand, you may find insights over here and you may say, wow. Hopefully not. There's so much reading you can do in my head. Agreed. Agreed. That's my problem as well. Okay, good. So, and lastly, uh, we would want to know, does he refer to other parashanim, classical, medieval, or modern? I want to know, does Rabbi Sassoon refer to any other modern parashanim? Is his edu- does his education stop at a certain point? If he's only quoting Gemarot, only Rashi, no Renaissance thinkers, no post-enlightenment thinkers, no modern thinkers, okay, I'm not judging him on that. I just, I'm learning more about the character of what to expect in his commentary. Right? Now, does he, for example, does Rashi ever refer to other Pashanim? Answer? Yeah. Who? Only classical. Oh, yeah, classical. Yeah. Correct. Only classical. Only Chazal. As Chazal. Does Ibn Ezra refer to other well, contemporaries? Well, who else does he have to quote from? There are revolutionaries in his time? Sure. Okay, there was two hundred years of Pasha before him. Admittedly, he didn't know Sa'aja, he didn't know Hofni, didn't know, know, he didn't know anything. Were there books published or things like that? No, well, there were. There were Geonim. He knew Geonim. He didn't quote the Geonim. On the other hand, Rashbam, we could ask that section. Or Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra, of course, quotes Karaites, Sa'aja, Hofni, and Rashi. And he's contemporary, more or less. Correct? Yeah, I'm almost finished. Where's Ramban do over here? Ramban will quote Haramban. Ibn Ezra, Rashi, and Chazal. So, who an author quotes? Telling them where 
is telling us where they're at. Exactly. Very important. Okay, good. Um, we spoke also already, does he recognize sexual ambiguities? We gave two examples of that. Correct? One should be aware of that. Don't become like the other rabbis and repeat the word I'm not. I'm not. It's finished. We're up to part two now. So now... When do you think we'll get to Next week. Next week. At the beginning? What I want, well, yes. Then we had enough for these, right? <laughs> what I want you to look at is the very first line that he's commenting on and think about the question I raised before. What would I... What he would you... Every man revere his mother and father? Right. Why he choose that line to comment on? Why men? He didn't have anything to say on it. Wait, wait, wait. What the difference is? Each could be uh, mankind. That's what we talked about. Whatever. Okay, good. Whatever. Good. Good, good, good. good. Yeah. Each could be mankind. But what... No. Okay, good. So, <laughs> good. so what you want to do over here is think about, you read the, the, the parashat. You're, you're doing a class on, you're doing a class on Kiddushim. Read the opening up to this pasuk and tell me, prepare for next week, what would you have commented on? What's your issue? And think about what my issues would be. Right? That's going to be very revelatory. What's your issue and what's his issue? And interestingly, you're telling me that he had nothing to say about anything that preceded this, this particular pasuk. Okay, that could be the case. Could be the case where he found nothing, or Basun found nothing to say about the first two or three or four pesukim well, of the special. Correct. What's been written on it? No, no, no. No, I think, no, 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 I, I, think I think what Rabbi is saying is why did he start exactly with yeah, this I, person when there are there are like a uh, hundred whatever before this. Whatever there is before, but I find a lot of stuff before this that I would want to say. A lot, extraordinarily much. He has nothing to say about the other issues. That's amazing. It's not an in-depth reflection. He had no reflections oh, on what preceded this right pasuk? That's what he wants to reflect on. Why? That's it. You didn't. Yeah. That doesn't need to say that you think you're being touched. I'm sorry? Is it the second pasuk? What is? Look it up. Whatever it is. It's the second. It is the beginning of it. But it's not the beginning of it. Of course it's the beginning of it. No, here it is. By the way, Shalom Moshe Lemor. So it's the third pasuk. Okay, now, does he have nothing to say? say does he, that's that, the beginning. No, it's not the beginning at all. This is a very important passage because it says, Is there any other place in Torah which opens up? And why is this called Adat? So it doesn't tell me about that issue. That's an important issue. I will talk about that issue. And you have Daber and Vamarta. Correct? I have a dual verb, dual issue. Daber Vamarta to him. He's going to say that Kedoshim to you. What is the word? Kedosh is probably the most important word biblically that you could find for me. One of two most important biblical words. He's going to say something about the word Kedoshim to you. Kedosh Hashem Rukhim. Next week I'm going to begin by telling you about the word Kedoshim and Kadosh and all that stuff. That's what you think it means. I know, that's what Ashish says it means. Correct. We're not going to start with that traditional stuff. I will tell you what I say, then we'll see what they say. Okay. Makes sense to me. I'm happy that it does. I would not want you to walk away without something making sense to you. So <laughs> this is fine. This, this is good. This is good. So then I, you find it of interest that he has something to say about this over here and not the other. He is obviously selecting his thoughts and has nothing to say about the other stuff. That's commentary in itself. Exactly. My point. Correct. Exactly. So that we want to explore. Okay. Thank you. And we'll see this next week. Yes. Exactly. Very good. Thank you. Next week.